bring lawyers into his chambers, into his, his rooms, and uh, they were standing before him, and they were uh, involved in a case where they were both arguing uh, a case against one another. And uh, the judge said very sternly to them, uh, you've both given me bribes. You've both tried to bribe me. And he turned to the first one, and he said, uh, Mr. Mr. Smith, you have given me a bribe of 15,000 pounds. And he turns to the other one, and he says, Mr. Jones, you have given me a bribe of 10,000 pounds. The two lawyers were very, uh, very uncomfortable, sort of, sort of squirming. And, uh, but the judge takes a check out of his pocket for 5,000 pounds, and he hands it to the first lawyer, Mr. Smith, and he says, uh, here now is a check for 5,000 pounds. We're going to decide this case purely on its merits. You have to think about that one. The parable of the unjust judge is the parable that begins Luke chapter 18. And what Jesus is telling us is not that God is like the unjust judge, but he's nothing like the unjust judge. He's contrasting Jesus to the judge in the story, an unscrupulous and uncaring judge who cares nothing for anybody's plight in terms of justice and certainly doesn't care about this widow who keeps bothering him about wanting to see justice against her adversary. But eventually she wears him down, eventually because she keeps nagging on and on about getting justice, he finally relents. And also because, as the Bible reading says, one translation puts it, because he's scared that one day she's going to come and give him a black eye. And so eventually, he gives her justice. In the Jewish court system at that time, there was no crown prosecution service, no police force as such. And so if someone committed a crime against you, it was up to you to bring a case against them. Every case was a civil case. In other words, if someone murdered your brother, sister, child, or father, there was no police force or prosecution service to act on your behalf. You had to gather evidence. You had to get the judge to sit. You had to make the case. And so that's the context of this this story that Jesus tells, this parable that he tells to the disciples. All through this chapter, it's really important to notice at each part of it, to whom is Jesus speaking? In fact, all throughout Luke's gospel, it's really important to notice at the start, to whom is Jesus speaking? So, at the very start, he's speaking the parable to do with the persistent widow and the unjust judge. He's speaking to his disciples. The second parable he speaks to those, Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Uh, That includes, Luke is, I'm sure, telling us the religious leaders of the time. All throughout this section of Luke, Jesus is either speaking to his disciples or he's speaking to the Pharisees, and Luke always tells us to whom he's speaking, and that's always really, really important. So, the two parables look entirely different at first glance. One's in the temple. The first one is in the courtroom. The second one is in the temple. But both parables are actually about justification, vindication, being proved right. You see, it's the Pharisee in the second parable 
in the temple who makes the temple like a courtroom. Because when he talks to God, he basically says, God, thank you that I'm not like this other man. Thank you that I'm not like adulterers and swindlers and thieves. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. He's basically declaring that God should judge between the two of them. He's making the temple into a courtroom. And so the reason the parables are side by side is because both of them are about the same thing. Both of them are about who is God going to find in favor of? So the first parable, is God going to find in favor of the widow or her adversary? In the second parable, is God going to find in favor of the tax collector or find in favor of the religious leader, the Pharisee? The thing that really startles, I'm sure, everybody but the Pharisees is the fact that here's this tax collector who's far away from God, not just geographically because he's standing at the back of the temple, but also because he's far away from God, it seems, in the way he lives his life. Tax collectors were people who were considered traitors. They were considered fraudulent, uh, treacherous people uh, who hung out with the wrong type of people, including the Romans. They were basically people who had betrayed their own people. They were lining their own pockets with the money from their own people. And so whenever the Pharisees were listening and everyone else listening, they certainly wouldn't have thought that in this courtroom scene that Jesus is painting, that what's going to happen is that God is going to turn and point to the tax collector and say, I find in favor of this one. For the Pharisees, it's just unthinkable. Surely, the Pharisees are thinking, surely God is going to find in favor. Surely, God is going to declare blameless. God is going to justify. God is going to vindicate the person who is religious, prayerful, fasting, who knows the law and obeys the law. Wouldn't the Pharisees and everyone else expect that the person that God is going to turn to and say, you are the one who is right in my sight. You are the one who here today in this courtroom is proven right before me today. Surely it's going to be the one who prays and gives and fasts and knows the law and obeys the law, who diligently obeys it. Surely that's the person that God is going to point at the end of the case and say, I find in favor of the Pharisee. And Jesus says, no, no. I find in favor of the tax collector. It's the tax collector who stands before me, and to today I am saying, you are absolutely blameless. You are without sin. You are innocent. I feel a great deal of sympathy for the Pharisees. Two weeks ago we spoke about stewardship, about stewardship of resources, that as human beings, God has delegated responsibility to us to look after His creation under His authority with His power. I can understand that as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, that, that they would have been thinking, how do I steward well the resources that God has given me? How do I exercise leadership in the context of the people of God? Surely one of the things that a Pharisee would have been asking is, how can I tell in the here and now 
who is living in God's favor? Who is living the right way? Who is doing the right thing? Who is living under God's favor in the here and now? Because as the Pharisee, they would have needed to know that to understand how do you lead well? How do you steward God's resources of the people that He's placed in your care if you have, if you have no re- revelation from God as to who is actually walking in favor with God? And Jesus is turning everything that they believe upside down. And He's saying, you can't tell from the exterior. You can't tell by how much someone prays or gives or fasts or knows the Bible or obeys the Bible. Jesus is saying something very shocking, and He's saying you can't tell from that. Because what is happening between a person and God ultimately at its very heart is unseen. As the Old Testament teaches us, God doesn't look at the externals. Even if they're religious externals, He looks at the heart. And what God is interested in is is the attitude and the posture that people present to Him that really indicates what is going on in this person's inner being. And what Jesus is saying is that actually, despite all the externals, the Pharisee, God doesn't find in favor of him. God finds in favor of the tax collector who's standing a long way off because he feels a long way off, and he knows his life is steeped in sin and brokenness and fraud and treachery, that he's a traitor to his people, he's a traitor to his God, and he doesn't even look up to heaven. He stands at a distance physically and metaphorically, and he beats his breast, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what Jesus is saying is, it's in that unseen corner that no one is looking at, no one is focusing on the guy standing at the back who isn't even looking up to heaven, but he knows that he's a sinful man. That man, said Jesus, is being declared innocent today. His life is steeped in sin. His pattern of life is broken. But God is saying, you're the one who's innocent. Today, I, as the just judge, find in favor of you. How can this be? How can it be? I can just imagine the Pharisees' thought processes. How can it be that someone who appears as if they're not justified is justified? How can it appear that someone who, who, who looks as if they're in favor with God actually is out of favor with God? This is a central theme of the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. The question was, who ultimately is going to be proved right? Is it the Pharisees or is it Jesus? And the fact was, only time would tell. The people, I'm sure, were all wondering, well, who's right? Is it these thousands of Pharisees, or is it this one man, Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth? The reality is, only time would tell. 
only the resurrection would tell. Only the fact that the temple would be destroyed 40 years later, as Jesus had predicted, only then would it become clear who was actually speaking the words of God. I think it's very understandable why the Pharisees just couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying. You see, the reason is because God was breaking and had broken into the world in a new way, in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. There was a new dispensation, a new thing happening, and He was standing right before them. Today we celebrate Holy Communion, bread being broken, wine poured out, the reality of the fact that we are declared innocent, blameless, to be in the right before God, not because of what we have done, but because Jesus Christ has done it, because He died on the cross for you and I. So, some verses in this chapter that uh, I think we did, we did read. Jesus took the twelve. He's speaking to the twelve this time, verse 31, and told them, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him. On the third day, He will rise again. The answer to why the Pharisees can't understand, and the reason why the disciples can't even understand, is because Jesus is on the journey to do what actually is going to make it all possible, that He is going to make it possible for us to be declared blameless before God, not based on anything that we have done, but entirely based on what God has done. It's what Paul talks about as justification by faith. He expands on it in his letter to the Romans and letter to the Galatians. It's what we understand and summarize as the goodness of God being received by us through faith, us being acquitted, vindicated, justified, let off, declared blameless through the work of Jesus Christ, nothing to do with what we have done and nothing to do with what we do so that no one can boast. As someone said, a visitor going out at the end of the first service, it's like a fairy tale, isn't it? It's like a fairy tale that actually God, through Jesus Christ, is pointing to every single one of us, and He's saying, I declare you blameless. I declare you innocent. Before me today, Jesus says in His parables, He says to every one of us that in His name He's saying, without sin, without sin, without sin, blameless, innocent, free, free, innocent, forgiven. I declare that in my sight you are absolutely in a right standing with me. That's what the word righteousness means. Now, how, how could this be? How could it be when you and I know that we've said things and done things, and we've missed doing things and missed saying things. How, how could it be for those, all of us who know that in some way we've been negligent, some way we've shirked our responsibilities, some way we've spoken or done things that have hurt other people? How could this be that Jesus is saying, 
everyone in my name who trusts in God's goodness is absolutely innocent. Because God is a gracious God and God is a just judge and because Jesus Christ died for us. And it's his CV that counts and not ours. It's like a fairy tale. And so we have the story that Luke places in the middle of this chapter of, of the rich ruler who comes to Jesus and I think who genuinely wants to know, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? How can I be that in the age to come, God's age, that I'm, I'm part of it all? I'm part of all good, God's good plans. How can this be? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And I think the man genuinely and honestly responds, I have kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. Here's an example of someone like the Pharisee standing in the temple who seems to be doing absolutely everything right. And yet Jesus says, you still lack one thing. The challenge Jesus was giving to that man was this. He was confident. He was disciplined. He was prayerful. He knew the Scriptures. He obeyed the Scriptures. Yet he was relying on the fact that when he stood before the just judge, what he had done would be enough. What Jesus Christ is saying, what Luke is telling us in this, is that amazingly, shockingly, from the point of view of the Pharisees, the answer is no. You can't stand before the judge alone and find favor with God. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, God will not find in favor if you're standing by yourself. You need to have someone standing with you, and the person is Jesus Christ. Only with Jesus Christ beside us, only with God looking at his CV and not ours, will God turn to us and say, I declare that you are innocent. It's about being childlike, which again is why Luke includes here those little verses about the little children being brought to Jesus and Jesus wanting to gather them in his arms and saying, let them come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He's not saying the kingdom of God belongs to a certain type of people who are below a certain age. He's saying the kingdom of God belongs to people who have a childlike attitude. I've been really blessed in my life having a wonderful mother and father. And uh, I believe, like perhaps many of you growing up, my father could do anything. I believe that the bank of dad and mom had no limit. That all I had to do was ask, and I would receive. 
it's a great start in terms of understanding what it means for God to be a, a good, good father to us. What Jesus is saying is this. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then the attitude we need to have is that we have a father in heaven and I can ask him for absolutely anything. And unlike the unjust judge in the first parable who needs to be worn down and worn down and worn down and threaten possibly violence against the judge, what he's saying is this, why wouldn't God the Father? He's a good God. He's not like that judge. He wants to answer your prayer just like that because he's a good God. And so Luke finishes with the account of, we didn't read this, but the account of the blind man outside Jericho. And as Jesus coming into Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, and a man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice his words are very like the tax collector in the temple, and Luke wants us to, to recognize that. Here's a man who, like the tax collector, is shouting out, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here is King Jesus walking into Jerusalem in all his humility but stately splendor of the Holy Spirit. Does he need to be worn down by this poor blind man? Does the man need to, to wear him down? No. As soon as Jesus hears the man, he says, bring him into my presence. It's like a, it's like a royal courtroom scene. What do you want me to do for you, says King Jesus? I want to see. Go. Your faith has healed you. Childlike faith, where we believe that the bank of our Heavenly Father has no bottom to it. And we believe that all we have to do is ask, and God hears. But He would always answer for the very best of His children. It was a real privilege last week um, during the coffee break to hear about a story from one of our church family um, about how God has just amazingly answered prayer to bring about reconciliation in her family. That in, in, a, single, in a single phone call, in a single moment, in a single day. So many broken relationships were just fixed, just like that. That her whole family was transformed and is being transformed. And she said, I have, I have been praying that God would just fix it all. And this morning as I came in at 10 o'clock, a gentleman at 10 o'clock service says, I was prayed for here last week for healing. I was in severe pain. On Monday morning, I woke up, all the pain was gone. Today, we gather together as the people who believe that our Father is a Father who can heal, a Father who forgives, a Father with limitless provision, that we as the children of God, we, we just keep asking and trusting, whether it's for forgiveness whether it's for wisdom, whether it's for revelation. Because one of the questions in this is, 
How on earth were the disciples and the Pharisees going to understand? How on earth were the Pharisees going to understand if even the disciples couldn't understand? And the answer is by a miracle. And what Luke is telling us is this. All of us need a miracle like the blind man at Jericho. All of us need the Holy Spirit in our lives to awaken us to the fairy tale reality that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that amazingly, no matter what our track record is, what we have done, or even what we're doing, Jesus Christ, in His name, through His cross, through His death, declares to those who trust Him, every single one is innocent. Every single one is blameless in His name. As a family, we're seeing the kingdom of God come more and more in our lives. My prayer, our prayer as a family, is that for you over these next months, that you will see more and more the kingdom of God coming in your lives. And it comes by us asking and asking and asking. That's the beauty of children, is that there's this humility and trust where they're always asking for help, they're always asking for more. Always believe there's more to come. Why wouldn't the father, why wouldn't mother, why, why wouldn't my parents want to bless me? So I'll just keep asking. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll ask for wisdom. I'll ask for revelation. I'll ask for reconciliation. I'll ask for an answer to prayer. I'll ask for healing. That's what it means to be childlike. That's what it means to receive the kingdom of God. Because we have a Father who loves us. And today, we want to say thank you, Jesus Christ, for saving us. We want to say thank you to the Holy Spirit for healing. Thank you to the Holy Spirit for revelation. Thank you for making something that seems too good to be true, something that we realize, my goodness, it's true. And it can be true about every single human being. And thank you to the Father that He's created us and adopted us into His family as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to say thank you for, for your blessing for us as a family. Uh, thank you for your love. We've been really touched over these days and weeks as to uh, the love that you have shown us and uh, just the encouragement you've given us and, uh, and for praying for us. And uh, we're, we're greatly blessed. And uh, our hope and our prayer is that both you and we, over these months ahead, will look to the Father with childlike humility and expectancy, and we will ask for absolutely everything, particularly the things that seem impossible, because that's when the glory of God really comes into its own. So this morning, this communion service, and also in prayer afterwards, I want to encourage you. As a verse, a beautiful verse in the middle of this chapter says, with man, things are impossible. But with God, things are possible. I want to encourage you, ask and keep on asking. Because we have a good Father who's a just judge, who is caring, and who desires readily to say yes.